and he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Well, hello and welcome to this first Friday episode on the Feast of the Guardian Angels of Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Kyle, loyal to the Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. We always say that, Kyle, because we want to let people know that up front you're first and foremost Catholic. Kyle has been involved in the curriculum, consultation, and formation of priests and the laity related to Catholic liberation and exorcism for over 15 years. He has most recently, I guess it's probably been about a year now, Kyle, or maybe two years, when you began the Libra Cristo organization with Father Chad Ripperger? We're, we're now three years old. Three years old, okay. So I guess that means I'm three years older. <laughs> so you're three years old and you started this Libra Cristo organization and more information is available on your website. And before we get started and talk about angiology today, Kyle, tell us a little bit about your organization as Miriam Harold stands by. Libra Cristo, you can find us at www.librecristo.org. is an educational 5013C that is designed and, and built and founded upon the principles of Catholic liberation. And so to aid the Society of the Most Sorrowful Mother, the order that Father Ripperger has founded of contemplative exorcist priests whose charism includes instruction and training, we set about to train a, a lay element as well as to provide introductory uh, training and formation for priests who have not received this training uh, in seminary or in other ways. And so it's a delving back into the treasure chest of your of our faith, if you will, and, and uh, blowing the dust off of some of the concepts that were that we held to be true and operative for 19th centuries of the church. And so it's a traditional approach. It is the the Catholic approach to liberation. There have been so many Protestant uh, influences that have worked their way into the church, many of them with the okay and sanction of bishops, many of them being touted by those who, who know better or should. Um, and so Libra Cristo is a return to um, the traditional methodology of, of liberation. And so when you say true to the magisterium, um, Libra Cristo is absolutely true to the magisterium. <clears throat> Many of the liturgical practices and deliverance ministry practices are not true to the magisterium, and they operate on the fringes or beyond. And so this is a true Catholic approach to liberation. Thank you, Kyle. And also on the line is Marianne Harold from WQPH, which also broadcasts this show. Welcome, Marianne. Welcome, Angela. Thank you for having us. And thank you for being here. So today's October 2nd, Kyle, and we just recently had the feast on September 29th of the Archangels, so we thought, what more fitting topic this morning than to talk a little bit about who the angels are and what their charge is. I think it is a very fitting topic for us to talk about the angels. <clears throat> they are an element of our faith. Um, they are a dogma of Catholic faith that that the angels exist exist their various functions and classifications Saint Thomas the preeminent theologian of the Catholic Church <clears throat> the angelic doctor doctor of the church writes extensively on the angels their hierarchies how they're how they're set up what their duties are and things like this and so Modernly, there's a movement within the church to discount some of these doctors of the church. Yesterday was Therese, another doctor of the church. When these saints write and when they uh, proclaim, we do well to listen to them to the exclusion of the modern theologians whose initials are after their name. I tell people if you want to read a definitive authority on the church, you look for the initials, the ST, in front of the name not the PhD or the STL or anything that goes after the name. And so um, a little tongue-in-cheek jibe at some of the modern theologians who come at the scripture without the benefit of virginity, purity, and of religious uh, life given to God, 
that reads the scriptures inspired from that position of purity. Um, so I think some of those observations are very, very important. I would also point out that the calendar is diminished with regard to the angels. Uh, in the old calendar, each archangel had his own day. Um, and so we're, we're diminishing uh, the liturgical significance uh, of the angels. Bear in mind that the other side, the adversary, is full aware uh, of their power and their efficacy if we call upon them. And so I think the first principle with regard to the angelic is the difference between an angel and a demon. A demon is a fallen angel. And so their behavior shifts. And here's the, the primary difference that one has to, to have uh, in their mind, I think, to navigate this spiritual realm. And that is that the angel will only go where he is invited and it is within God's holy will. The demon will go where he is not resisted, especially to oppose God's holy will. So let me say those two things again, because this is very, very important, and it helps you, in fact, discern. It's a, it's a key element to discern whether you're under the influence of an evil spirit or a good spirit. So the angel will only go where he is invited, and it's in conformity to God's holy will. The demon will go where he is not resisted and when it's in opposition to God's holy will. What is God's holy will? Always and everywhere, salvation, union, restored and reconciled and sustainable union between creature and creator. So the demon militates against those things. He militates against order, uh, right order, right roles, uh, right relationship with God. And the angel aids in those relationships, in those aspects. And so when we talk about the angels, they are created mission specific. At any point, Angela, if you or Marianne have any questions, please um, um, let me know and, and we'll address these areas because this is a lot of material uh, to cover and I thank you for the opportunity to cover it uh, on the guardian angels. Thank you, Kyle. Yes, thank you. But keep going. Okay. All right, we'll press on. As Catholics, we do well to remember that first observation about going where one is invited versus going where one is resisted. And I think that is one of the things that um, helps gauge our behavior. What is our motivation? Are we purely motivated? Or are we seeking to exert or, or <clears throat> advance our will versus God's will? The angel, the, the angel would never uh, exert his will in uh, opposition to God's holy will. The demon, however, is locked into that fallen aspect. So let's, what is fallen? What does that mean? The fall of the angels, and I'm going to, the, what I'm drawing on is many, many different sources that bring all of this together. Now, there are people out there in the Catholic realm or claim to be Catholic, teaching various angel and demon courses, including a popular website that um, purports to be a spiritual direction um, website, um, as well as those who, who, tout themselves as demonologists, uh, deliverance experts. I think that like a lot of Protestant things, they have pieces of the truth, but not a totality of the truth. And we as Catholics are called to a totality of understanding of the truth. And so absent that totality, we, we only get a fractured image. We, we only see a small portion. And so let's start from a beatific view or a larger, a grand scope, if you will, and then we can narrow down as to what exactly um, may be the specific topic versus finding a specific topic and then expanding out. And so if you, if you understand the uh, analogy, it's as if we start from space and um, we, we zoom down into, into the world and, and to a specific location. 
So from that high view, that that spatial view, view that outer space view, <clears throat> God's view, if you will, the angels are arranged according to the Trinity. And so there are three hierarchies made of three choirs, giving us nine total choirs, arranged or configured around the three persons of the Trinity. And so if you see the numerology, you see God's hand in this. You see God, the symmetry of order. You see how all of these things work in concert in the same way that the Trinity works in concert. And that each person of the Trinity is in a way individual, yet in a reflection of the other. We go to the Athanasian Creed to give us the definitive relationship. So when you teach this, if you diagram the um, the Athanasian Creed, which places God in the center, and then there's a triangle at the top, is God the Father, and to the right is Christ the Son, and to the left is the Holy Ghost. Then you see the relationship. Each one of those persons of the Trinity is God, yet each one of those persons is not the other. There is a differentiation between God the Father and Christ the Son, yet both are God. And so this, the angels, the first hierarchy is called the contemplative hierarchy. This contemplative hierarchy is made of the, of the top three choirs. Now when we say top, I'm using those not necessarily in, in importance, um, nor in power, but more in attribute, and as St. Thomas would say, in, in a ranking in order for our human intellect, the limit of our human intellect to grasp this structure. So, if you're listening along, then you may draw this. If you're driving, uh, pay attention to the road. <laughs> but they configured around the top of our triangle, God the Father, this first person of the Trinity, is the contemplative hierarchy. These are made of the following three choirs, the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones. And so let's speak for a moment about each one of these and their attributes and how sacred art, as well as the inspired writers of Holy Scripture, how they have seen and described these particular angels, orders of angels, choirs of angels, along with their primary attribute of each choir. So the first one, the seraphim, we intone their words at the Holy Mass. When we begin the canon of the Mass, the offertory ends with Sanctus, 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 Dominus Deus Sabaoth, Holy, 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 Lord God of Hosts. And so this is the salutation, the ongoing salutation of the seraphim. The writers, sacred writers, describe the seraphim as having eyes, as having multiple eyes, but all focused on God. So this creature sings the praise of God, stands in the presence of God, is the closest in proximity, the first concentric circle out from the essence of God, who beholds his glory and is constantly intoning sanctus, 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 holy, holy, holy. We hear this about this angel in Isaiah, among other places. And so speculative theology, there is two different camps on whether Lucifer was a seraphim or a cherubim, but either one of those camps hold that he is within this contemplative hierarchy, this closest to God. Now this essence, this space of God, God the Father, God the Creator, we may see him as God of thought. We as Catholics are very well aware of the Trinitarian concept of our own nature, or we should be, which is thought, word, and deed. The unseen thought gives rise to the spoken word, gives rise to the deed. And so we see this Trinitarian progression. The unseen God begins to be manifest, begins to be seen, begins to be tangible 
when he speaks, let there be light. And then you see that you you see um, the prologue of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and nothing that came to be came to be without him. So this language, the word is the Christ. And so our Lord is the physical manifestation of our God. And and so these these words mean things. And so God Almighty, the God of thought, speaks and this tangible word is manifest in flesh. We see this again at the Annunciation. So the third person of the Trinity is the realization and the presence among all men of this faith. What faith begets hope begets charity. And so faith in God the Father begets hope in Christ the Son and cannot be contained and is manifest in the charity of the Holy Spirit working within within us, in us and through us, all for love of God, and we circle back to God. So this Trinitarian movement, you'll see that many artists try to capture this as a tunnel of light surrounded by angels leading ever upward closer to the throne of God. So all of these images have some value uh, in helping us understand this configuration. So the seraphim behold only God, have eyes only for God in his essence, and look upon him constantly. The cherubim are depicted as eyes both toward God and toward creation. And so they're aware of God both in, the, um, in his essence and in, and in his manifestation, in his creation. And so the cherubim, when you see that in Genesis when uh, Adam and Eve are um, sent from the garden, a cherubim with a flaming sword protects the garden. See the garden as proximity to God, proximity in relationship, more so than proximity in geography. But this is how close their relationship was to God. They beheld God. They walked with him. They talked with him. They were. He was present to them. And then after the fall, they cannot be in his presence. The cherubim give us an idea of just how close this paradiso, this garden, this paradise, was to being in the proximity of God. So you've got seraphim, cherubim, with eyes both before and behind, beholding God both in his essence and in his creation, in his creatures. Then you have the third concentric circle out, which are the thrones. One of the early writers, one of the patriarchal writers, described the th thrones as the altar rail of the throne room of God. And so that is where petition is made. That is where prayer is made. That is where um, the economy of salvation becomes whole. This is where Raphael would have taken the petitions of Sarah and Tobit both to the altar rail and then God in his wisdom sends Raphael to minister through, a, through an act which is the epitome of the economy of salvation to save both Sarah and Tobit, but at the same time save the Jewish people. And so in the, in the uh, economy of salvation, what you see is that when God acts, when the, the holy will of God is operative in the history of man, it has a definitive movement that benefits many souls, not just a single soul. And so the economy of salvation is wrought at the throne room, or at the, at the altar rail of the throne room of God, which is known as the, as the thrones. And so there's the first hierarchy, uh, contemplative hierarchy, seraphim, cherubim, thrones. And you see their various duties, their various um, opera <coughs> operations, if you will. And so then let's move into the second hierarchy, which is the, called the governance hierarchy, because they surround our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our Lord, he who rules our, us temporally, he who rules us, uh, our prince, our brother, he who rules our elder brother, he who 
leads us to perfected relationship with God the Father and establish the church and the sacraments for that reconciliation. All of these topics would be a standalone uh, conference, if you will, but I'm giving you just a flyover. If you would like more information on this, you may go to www.libercristo.org, email the station, call the station, let them know you would like more detailed programming on this because there is so much misinformation out there. I got an email just today uh, touting a, an angels and demons and, and deliverance conference um, that's going to draw largely on Protestant sources. So let's eat good stuff, let's take in good stuff, let's drink pure things um, that, that nourishes our faith. So this second or middle hierarchy is made up of the three choirs of the dominions the virtues and the powers and it's called the choir of governance because it is through our relationship with Jesus Christ that we submit ourselves to the governance of God Almighty by submitting ourselves to the authority of Christ and his church so authority power and authority in this world is manifest in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's look at the virtues, uh, the, the dominions. And so dominions, as we move into this choir of dominions, it's to rule our unruly passions. If you pray the chaplet of St. Michael, each one of these has an, an individual intercession or a specific area. What are our passions, our desires? So it's through the passion of the Christ that our passions are brought into right order. And so it's by watching the Christ, the, the epitome of virtue, of nobility. There's a very interesting discussion. Aristotle, he who knew not Christ, speaks of nobility. But it's in a twisted sense. It's in the same twisted secular sense that we hear it spoken about today. Aristotle says that the noble act is a virtuous act and the virtuous man is noble by uh, writ of his virtue. But Aristotle is defining virtue as power over other men. By our, by our behavior, we win affirmation or admiration of, of other men, and in that lies power. So this misses the true mark of nobility. Lord, our Lord is the, is the epitome of, of Lord, and that is the willingness to do whatever is necessary to ensure the salvation, the care, the and, and I'm listing it in that order. Salvation has to come first. It's about salvation of souls. So our Lord is motivated by salvation of souls and his nobility is doing whatever is necessary to ensure those souls the opportunity to reach God. And that includes death, self-sacrifice, placing ourselves in a spousal role with the Christ, which is a total giving of self to God the Father to achieve this reconciled relationship. We miss that modernly and secularly when we use Aristotle's understanding of virtue, which is we will become um, affirmed and admired by other men and therefore receive some type of power or sway over them. I think this is not a subtle point. I think this is a very significant point because if you ascribe to Aristotle's definition of virtue and nobility, you are turning your back on God. You're, you're becoming ad populum or ad hominem versus ad orientum, facing toward God with Christ the Son. Jesus always pointed us to God the Father. Power was not something to be grasped at. He emptied himself like a slave. These, All of these images give us what lordship looks like. And so the dominions as angels are a leading aspect. The fallen dominion becomes a domination. And so the difference in domination is the forceful imposition of will versus dominion, which is the leading of one to God's holy will. And so it is very much the difference between a shepherd 
um, and a drover. A drover drives. They drive away. They and, and a shepherd leads. The sheep follow the shepherd. It's not that he's driving them through intimidation. So the difference between dominion and domination, I think, is a is a whole concept about how we live our life, how we impose God's will and or our will on those souls that are in our care. And so the next one are the virtues. Preserve us from evil and falling into temptation. And so the virtues aptly named are those habits, angels named for those habits, which would draw us closer to God. Pursuit of the good and the total good, the, the ultimate good being God himself. And so in opposition to virtue is vice. And so if virtue serves God, vice serves self. See that in this contemplative choir of governance, in this governance, then we will either yield to our Lord and become like him, or we will be in opposition to him. We will refuse to suffer. We will refuse to pick up our cross. We will refuse to follow our Lord in the salvific mission that he is sharing with us. This is a key point in liberation, un the understanding of liberation, <clears throat> is that ultimately, until someone is willing to transition from pain to suffering to sorrow, and willing to engage in, and, will and accept whatever has happened to them as a method of suffering with Christ, joining their, their travail, their their hoc lacrimarum vale, their their path through this tra this valley of tears, this pilgrim life, until they become Catholic in this, they're going to be subject to the adversary. They're going to be subject to that seductive voice which says you deserve, or that God is somehow at fault. This is a key point. This is a very, very key point that is missed in modern spiritual direction. It's missed in deliverance. It's missed in programs like Unbound and others, it's simply missed. And that is the, the understanding of redemptive suffering. There are many, many Catholic priests, charismatic Catholic priests out there right now who are preaching um, a theology that is not consistent with the, with the understanding of redemptive suffering and the value of joining our suffering to Christ. This is, this is a travesty because it blocks the heart to mercy. This is again another topic. If we are a mercy-driven theology, then we have to understand that the coin of the realm in the merciful kingdom is the willingness to suffer for others. It is the understanding of the damage that sin does to the relationship with God and our ability to convey grace that unforgiveness, that finding fault with God is the single biggest impediment to grace. Liber Cristo developed a program called Freedom Through Christ, which the Society of the Most Sorrowful Mother uses as part of its evaluation program. I would encourage you to go to www.libercristo.org and look at Freedom Through Christ because this is a Catholic approach to identifying and removing the impediments to grace. This is what virtues are all about is how do we conform ourselves to the Christ and so the next choir in the governance hierarchy that next choir down is the powers and so you would remember that St. Paul talks about our battle is not against flesh and blood rather the powers and principalities of this world and so we'll cover the principalities in the next uh, choirs but their interaction is very, very important. So principalities are where governance becomes policy, if you will. And so this is precisely the breakdown. This is the listening to the demon. And in some of his language, I'll be very frank with you, his language is, well, I may believe in, uh, that abortion is wrong, but I'm not going to push my views on my constituents, or I'm not going to vote that way. Pay really close attention to our government officials and our elected officials, our episcopate, our cardinals, our archbishops, because the powers are very, very present to them. This is how we govern other people, not necessarily how we govern ourselves. But if there is a disconnect between the way we govern ourselves and the way we govern other people who have been placed in our care, either providentially through election 
or through heredity, through uh, birth uh, as children. If we are living a double standard, if we do not impose upon ourselves the same stringent requirements and governance parameters that we impose on those below us, we are diabolically afflicted because there is no consistency. But there Kyle, is no I just want to interrupt you on that one. So does that, might, does that work two ways? One is, you know, we don't impose the governance, we don't impose what we are inflicting on others on ourselves. But how about the opposite in today where we have certain beliefs but we don't want to impose those on others. Well, it does work two ways. And so that's, the, if we have certain beliefs and we don't want to impose those on others, then are those beliefs consistent with the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are they consistent with our Catholic faith? And if they are consistent, then not only should we impose them on ourselves, but we it is our duty to teach them, to preach them, to place them on others in our that are subordinate or subjected to us through providence um not by force again it's by d dominion not domination and so that's key all of these work in concert you can't pull one out and use it and not use the other but there's also another aspect of this it's very very subtle remember that a vice is two different uh errors of a virtue virtue virtus meaning middle so if the virtue is humility, the vices are arrogance and self-deprecation. Both of them are, are offenses against humility, who is knowing exactly who you are in the cosmos. But scrupulosity is a good example of we impose a higher standard on ourselves than we do on others. And this is a form of pride. It's a form of arrogance. It's a false humility. And so when we fail to extend the charity to ourselves, love of, of self, if we fail to do that, yet we love neighbor, then we are, this is a very vulnerable place to the adversary and we can be driven out of right relationship with God. So there has to be a consistency and a constancy that if we're going to extend charity and mercy to others, then we not only have to be open to it ourselves, we have to let others be charitable to us, we have to see our own soul is that which is worthy of salvation. We can't be prideful in that. And this is this is essentially the key to understanding scrupulosity. Modernly, priests are taught to be confessors, not count. Um, I mean, they're taught to be counselors, not confessors. If they go at this as a vice, if they go at this as a defect in virtue, then they can bring a person out of scrupulosity. But if they try to counsel them out of it, if they try to the secular approach, then it will actually raise up an animosity between the priest and the scrupulous person where there is an adversarial relationship. And so this is a key area to understand. It's one that we deal with a lot in, in liberation, uh, Catholic liberation understanding is that the scrupulous person is ultimately, this is a situation of pride, and it's a failure to extend charity to themselves in the same way that they would to their neighbor. And so that's a little insight into one of the defects in the powers in that hierarchy. Now, this, these choirs are very, very subtle because they're speaking against the Lordship of Christ. They're speaking against, they will drive someone to marry in consecration, and at the same time encouraging them fitful and worried prayer, uh, all types of devotions that are outside the consecration, which gives everything to the Blessed Mother. And so they operate on the edges. There's a lot of activity in these three choirs, and these are the main possessors. If you look at the fallen choirs, these three choirs of governance are the main possessors. And what they... One of the things that, that Liber Cristo teaches is the Catholic understanding that the demon enters through sin and attaches to heresy or to a, a mistruth, uh, to a falsehood. This is a whole nother area. There, this is a very rich area. But again, I'm giving you just the flyover. Does that make sense? Very powerful. Very powerful. <laughs> so now we, move yeah. in, now we move into the third hierarchy which is the ministering hierarchy 
And so remember now, if they are ministering as angels, then they are afflicting as demons. We have more interaction with these. There are more of them. They are more among us. And these are the small spirits, the vexing spirits, the nipping, the, the biting, the, the oppressing spirits. Very seldom are these possessors. But they are all over how we react, how we interact with our fellow man, our siblings. These are in many ways the manifestation of the disordered relationship of misgovernance, misgovernance of self, misgovernance of relationship. And so these are some of the accoutrements that grow up out of the disordered governance relationships. In, our pos in possession cases, you very, very seldom have a single possessor. It is the demon's um, effort to get at least one representative from each choir in the individual, both as afflictors and as possessors. And so as you go through the very strict methodology of Libra Cristo, of, of Catholic liberation, it expels the lesser spirits. As a person attains and sustains a state of grace, the lesser or afflicting spirits will leave him just as a matter of course. They do not want to be around the prayer. They don't want to be around the piety. They don't want to be around the ordering of life. They don't want to be around the odor of conversion. And so they leave. At the same time, they're drawn like buzzards to the smell of rot, to the smell of, of corruption, to the smell of sin. And so they begin to uh, pile onto the soul that is moving away from God, especially the soul that is self-justified. And so these lower choirs, the, this last hierarchy of ministering angels, are the principalities which attribute is obedience the archangels, which is about good works, and the guardian angels, whom who we celebrate today, and that is protection. And so those are those the, the attributes of those three choirs, uh, those three lower choirs, obedience, works, and protection. And so the archangels, meaning being the middle of that, are those that are about works, about meritorious works, good works, if you are inspired to heroic virtue and to do something that is benefits your, your fellow man as a spiritual work of mercy, then the archangels are there to aid you in that. They are there to aid you. And I think this brings up another point that, that we should mention, and that is each of us is given a guardian angel. Now, it's speculative theology as to whether that angel is dispatched um, at birth or accompanies your soul to um, earth at the moment of conception. The weight of the argument is that the, the soul is accompanied to the earth by the guardian angel. That guardian angel is the guardian and accompaniment of that soul until it returns, either to heaven or departs this earth. And so you can take that theology and speculate according to theological norms and, and known theology and dogmatic theology. You can speculate in accord with that and to see that many of the church fathers, many of the saints wrote that our guardian angel is present to us even in the purgative state on our path back to heaven. But at the moment that the soul makes the uh, decision to turn away from God at death, and at, at that moment when the soul is separated from the body and the free will of the human, which is to be apostate from God, to be separated from God, the angel can't go there. The, the guardian angel can't go there. Remember, he can only do what is requisite with God's holy will. For instance, you couldn't ask your angel uh, to accompany you while you commit a mortal sin, a premeditated mortal sin. He's going to step away from you at that moment. A good visual is that you and the, your guardian angel walk side by side. You come to an invisible boundary, and that boundary is the will of God, or to step over into mortal sin, and the angel can't do that, and he won't do that. So as you descend into mortal sin, the habitual practice of mortal sin, you get further and further away from your angel figuratively, so it's harder and harder to hear him. 
And so he stands at this borderland of mortal sin and, and fractured relationship with God, um, figuratively shouting or symbolically shouting at you. But if your distance is so great, you can't hear it. There has to be a prick of conscience to turn back. When did I lose this guardianship? When did I lose my common sense? When did I lose my sense of propriety? And in that moment, dialogue is reestablished. So the guardian angel speaks to us in our conscience. If our conscience is, is muddied, if our conscience is purposefully numbed, if our conscience is um, abraded by so much an ongoing habitual mortal sin, then it's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, for us to hear um, the counsel of that good angel. That is why it's so very, very important, even with venial sin, to keep yourself in a state of grace. I think it's amazing that our humanistic response um, doesn't call us for heroic virtue to step out of our um, our sin. For instance, I'll I'll give you an example. One of the primary one of the primary arguments for abortion for the killing of the unborn is it is the world is a horrible place to bring a soul. It's a horrible place to bring a, a, a human into. So therefore, um, to save this human, we should not bring them into this horrible place. Does anyone ever think that if it's this horrible, then it's too horrible a place to have sex? It's too horrible a place to have conjugal union. Why don't you stop the conjugal union so you don't have to kill the product of it? This is the exact same rationale that we bring to when we are sinning. We are all tied in knots because confession's not available in many places during COVID. Then don't sin. Attain a state of grace and maintain it at all costs. Become holy. What a novel concept. But this is a this is the understanding. This is how God gives gift. If you abuse confession, if you abuse, if you are in the sin of presumption saying, I can do this sin and then go to confession next week, then you're misusing the sacrament. You're, you're, you're wasting that avenue of grace, which is to convict us to attain a state of, of, of grace and do all that is necessary to maintain it. If you are far and between confessions, look at the the value of maintaining custody of, of the thought, custody of the tongue. Avoid the near occasion of sin. I hope you see the parallel there, but the ministering spirits, those that were sent to minister to us and build us up, the demons afflict us and they affect they affect us in the same place that the Holy Spirit affects us and that's in our flesh. They traffic in our flesh. And so they are present in our disordered appetites, our disordered desires, our memories, our emotions, and they drive us to corrupt relationship. They drive us to elevate our will over God's will. They drive us to replace, all of us understand or know the phrase, you must look out for number one. Very simply, what the ministering spirits do is constantly remind us that number one is God. What the afflicting spirits constantly propose is that number one is us. And so that's the hierarchies and the choirs in a very tight nutshell. And Kyle, that was, <laughs> you know, that was 45 minutes of the show and I could have listened to you for... <laughs> 45 times 45. Thank you. Now, Miriam, did you have some questions from listeners that you wanted to uh, bring yes, up? Yes, I Kyle? did. I think one question was on scrupulosity, which I think you answered uh, wonderfully, uh, how I would never believe that it would be something of pride. And uh, of a lot of parents are saying about abortion that they want to speak to their voting children or adults' children about it, but they, they think it's a, a very, a, you know, dangerous thing for them to open up that conversation. And especially we have an election coming up, and we're seeing all these things about our conscience with ca so alleged Catholic uh, candidates that are saying infanticide's okay. How can we speak frankly to those in our charge and around us? How can we broach that conversation? What words should we use? I know we should maybe pray to our angel first, right? To guide us? You should always pray that your guardian angel go to their guardian angel and open them to the, the discussion, the dialogue. But what I'm about to give you is 
a, a very unique opening and you'll certainly have their attention. But, and it's going to sting. It will, it will sting. And so let me go through it once and then let's go through it a second time. Fair enough? Yes. So this is the flagellation. This is, this is the scourge that we must, self-scourge that we must bring to this. If you look at homeschool families, if you look at families who understand that the obligation to form the intellect, the will, and the mind, and the faith of their children is theirs. It is their responsibility to educate their children, especially in matters of faith. Then you start to enter this discussion correctly. So the discussion with the, with the adult child who is, does not understand the severity of abortion should start with mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, son or daughter. I have failed in my obligation as, as head of the domestic church or even as formator, whether it's husband or wife speaking, we have failed because we abrogated your education and your formation to the public schools. We abrogated our responsibility for whatever reason. We abrogated it. We, we gave it up to someone else and your damaged intellect is a result of that formation. You do not understand the sanctity of life because we did not understand the sanctity of our obligation to raise you and to form you in such a way that this is a primary concern. So first and foremost, I would ask your forgiveness. The second thing I would ask is for you to consider the understanding that life is precious and a gift from God. And if you keep it short and succinct and do it like that, you've gone straight to their heart. Any other way raises up an obstinacy and a resistance. Because after all, if this child thinks this way and you've abrogated their formation to the public schools, the public square and secular input, then they are a product of their formation or lack thereof. But I know uh, in my own case that I, I sent some of my children to Catholic up to the high school, and I thought they were properly formed. And it wasn't until later in life that I realized they were being taught the Garden of Eden is just a fairy tale. There was no Adam, there was no Eve, and on and on and on. I'm like so shocked well, that finally I hear that conversation. I mean, in the Bible's a fantasy. I, you know. I understand, Marianne, but here's the thing is if you will grab that fault and and say, culpa," because I made the decision to send you to Catholic school. And, and even though we thought that the Catholic schools were teaching what they should have taught, we didn't do the due diligence. We didn't meet with the teachers. We yeah. didn't meet with the priests. And we were listening to trash in the homilies. Why would we think our kids weren't listening to trash in the Catholic schools? Correct. Is there another question? Is there another question, Miriam? Oh, sorry. Good. Um, yes, another one said. Now, um, is it true that going to confession is like um, so many exorcisms? Why wouldn't we um, be uh, advocating more going to confession if it's a form of exorcism? Is it? That's what the question was. Is going and making a good confession like an exorcism? Well, it's better than an exorcism because exorcism is a sacramental and confession is a sacrament. And so metaphysically or the way that it works in a, um, in a possession case or even in a deep obsession case is remember the concept that the demon enters through sin and attaches to heresy or a, a a falsehood or a mistruth is the way I'm defining heresy. So, Father Amorth, all exorcists of any um, import agree that confession is paramount to liberation because it is there that we confess our sin, we acknowledge our sin. Now, here's where the sacrament fails modernly. There are two places that it fails modernly. Number one is to retain a sin that we know to be a sin. For instance, if we go in with three mortal sins and we confess two, we actually come out with four. The three we went in with and now we've profaned the sacrament. So it's a total confession. 
we misuse the sacrament when we go in and only confess what is bothering us. We're going to counseling. We're not going to confession. In order to go to confession, to make a good confession, it is the totality of our sins, and we have to be good on that firm amendment. That's the, two, that's the first area. The second area is the acceptance of absolution and the living in an absolved state of grace. Because if we go back and then habituate that sin, we're militating against the absolution and the firm amendment. And so this idea that we are justified in a particular sin because of what someone did to us, this sabotages the sacrament. So done correctly, yes, the sacrament is much more powerful than exorcism. But done incorrectly, it will actually build a firmer attachment for the demon who then begins to manipulate the person in the in the sacrament. How they confess, what they confess, and if any time at all you find yourself in the in the sacrament of confession talking about the actions of someone else, you've missed the point. The point of confession is to confess our sins, not the sins of others. Not to justify, I did this because he did that. That's not mm -hmm. confession. Uh, we, we've got to, to take back the high ground of this sacrament, but you've got to realize that most of the priests represent a malformed generation, or now we're into the second generation, who do not know how to hear confession. They want to counsel, they want, they're trained to counsel, they're trained to diminish, they will even tell you that certain things are not sins, which we know they are. And so, seek out a good confessor, someone who will push you to be exculpatory in your confession, someone who will root out the cause, willing to take every single sin to a first commandment transgression. Very few of us go in and confess modernly sins against the first commandment, but every single sin ultimately is a sin against the first commandment so seek out the confessors seek out the good ones that will that will help you be exculpatory and will not let you uh say um step aside from from responsibility and so that's the that's the best counsel i can give you there yeah confession is much more powerful than exorcism done correctly yes and Miriam, we and have one quick one. Uh, one quick one about the power. What what should the lady be doing to uh, to pray to the guardian angels for priests and their angels? We have a lot of priests in turbulence. How do we yep. how do we address that? I think how that, do we how do we pray for those priests through their angels through their guardian angels? Well, first of all, first of all, let your heart not be troubled because you want your prayer to be meritorious. You want it to be efficacious not diminished yeah. by work, not diminished by tumult and anxiety. So you pray from a place of peace. And the, the most effective prayer is something that would bring about a prick of conscience. And I think that the best intercessory prayer is the light of Christ prayer. Lord, let them see themselves as you see them and let me see them as you see them. Entrust them to the Blessed Mother. Um, that they may hear their angels. That, that Because remember now that the angel can't do uh, anything that is against God's will, and he will not do anything that is against the human will. So if someone's in a state of habitual mortal sin, keeping their, uh, their guardian angel at arm's length, then he's relegated to being at arm's length until there is that prick of conscience. So you're much more effective to pray for that prick of conscience, to pray for that moment where um, the person is awakened uh, from this stupor, from this fog, from this uh, oppression, um, and where they turn toward God and away from self. And so I think that prayer is much more effective in, in, bringing, um, in bringing a change, uh, if you will, um, in how the priest views themselves, how they view their flock, and, and more importantly, how they view God. That's so powerful. Thank you. Any other questions, Marianne? I think that was really the prime one, and, and fear. I was just told we have a person in our midst who is suffering from great fear and paranoia, and I had a nurse assess um, the situation, and she said that there's a theory that mental illness um, is, um, is an oppression and uh, a spiritual problem. Is that true? 
while it may be a spiritual problem, ultimately we are responsible. And I think that's the that's one of the big things I'd really like to talk about at some point is in order for there to be oppression, in order for there to be obsession, in order for there to be possession, in order there for there to be any diabolical affliction, there is a, an element of a mental ill health or a dysfunctional mentality, meaning the faculties of the human person are disordered. We're placing too much on emotion, too much on memory. We're, we're placing too much emphasis and our faculties become disordered. There's a very good teaching on the faculties of the human person as described by St. Thomas Aquinas in the Freedom Through Christ material found at www.libercristo.org. But the faculty, ordering of the faculties of the human person, correctly ordered, make us impervious to oppression, uh, to obsession, to possession, because rightly ordered, we're focused on God. And otherwise, we become focused on ourselves. Even our oppression starts to turn us ad hominem versus ad orientum. And so, Modernly, what we say is if it's mental health, then somehow we're not at fault. We are the arbiters of our mental health, just in the same way that we're arbiters of our of our physical health. If I present myself weighing 550 pounds, eating 10 pounds of, of Ho-Hos and Twinkies a day and say, I don't know how I got diabetes. Well, I got a pretty good <laughs> You've got to use common sense. And so... Why am I feeling oppressed? What am I letting worry me? Where is the lack of trust? Fear and trust cannot occupy the same place. Fear is an offense against faith. And we have to understand that when we sin against the three theological virtues of faith, hope and charity, then fear is a sin against faith. Despair is a sin against hope. We need to understand this this at this um, arena because we're we're handing our opponent a stick with which he beats us when we feel bad about ourselves when we feel about these things and we turn away from God to seek self-esteem or to seek value or affirmation we've got to to practice the mental health which is properly ordered faith begetting hope and is manifest in charity and if we're living those attributes, then the mental health, if it's if it's uh, spiritual, it clears up. Uh, if it's physical, meaning brain imbalance, chemistry imbalance, these kind of things, then you look at it. But the diagnostic uh, protocols of the Society of the Most Sorrowful Mother, as an, as enumerated in the Libra Cristo materials. There is a very rote and methodical way to go through this diagnosis to see, is this spiritual or is it psychological? If it's spiritual, is it a self-inflicted wound? Is it a self-inflicted spiritual defect? And 90% of what we find are, in fact, self-inflicted wounds and that, uh, that creates a psychological compatibility with the diabolical. And so this is the concert of psychological imbalance or a psychological illness or a psychological thing that is working in concert with a spiritual defect to allow the demon to be present. So it's not an either or, it's most times a both and. But there is a way to ferret through this, there's a way to work through this, and you'll find it at www.librecristo.org. And Kyle, that's all the time we have. Just one more minute. Tell us a little bit about LibraCristo.org and why someone would go to your website. Okay, so first of all, to understand, this is not a ministry website. In other words, you're not going. We're not going to lead you through deliverance. We're not going to lead you through liberation. We're going to give you the tools to help your diocese, help your bishop, help your priest, help yourself institute these programs, which will return you to true Catholicism. Freedom through Christ is how to be Catholic. It's, it's how to identify the uh, impediments to grace, how to usher in a life of grace. And so, Liber Cristo is a teaching apostolate. It is not uh, designed for, we're not going to lead you through it. We're going to give you the tools to take to your priest so that he leads you through it. And in doing it this way, the church as a whole, as a body of Christ, is built up. And we stay within our mission which is education and formation, training of those that are engaged in this. So we develop and give you the tools 
to fight the adversary. Praise God. Kyle, God bless you, and we'll be back on the first Friday of November. Thank you, Marianne, and thank you, Kyle. God bless you, Angel. Thank you. Happy Angel Day. You have been listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFICatholicRadio.org.